Welcome to the Vanguard Bible Church Podcast. The current sermon series is entitled Radiant Church, Verse by Verse through Titus. For more information about Vanguard Bible Church, please visit our website at www.vanguardbible.org or come worship with us on Sunday mornings at 9 a.m. at Freedom Middle School in Northwest Bakersfield. We hope you enjoy today's message. Rolling Stone Magazine once ranked it the third greatest song of all time. In June of 1971, former Beatle John Lennon sat down at his upright Stanway, Stan, excuse me, Steinway piano at his in-home studio and composed an anthem for world peace called Imagine. The simple tune with its four-note figure, lullaby melody, and hallmark lyrics quickly climbed to number three on Billboard's top 100 chart later that fall. The graceful earworm asked listeners to imagine a divided world united with no religion, no countries, and no possessions. It became so popular that years later, President Jimmy Carter said in an interview, quote, the song, uh, my wife and I have heard this song all throughout the world in various countries that we've traveled, and we've been to 125 countries, you can hear John Lennon's song Imagine used almost equally with national anthems. But as often happens with songs that people hear, they hear what they want to hear. And the author's intended message is missed. In a well-documented interview uh, before his death in 1980, Lennon described... Uh, imagine as, quote, virtually a communist manifesto. Even though I am not particularly a communist and I do not belong to any movement, but because it is sugar-coated, it is accepted. Now I understand what you have to do. Put your political message across with a little honey, end quote. Well, like a smash radio hit, the doctrine of grace in the Bible, found in the Bible, has become immensely popular with readers. However, people read what they want to read, and they take away what they want to take away. And the author's intended message has unfortunately been missed. That's what Paul is trying to address in this passage that we're going to look at today in Titus chapter 2. We're continuing our series called Radiant Church in the book of Titus. I want to invite you to open up your Bibles to Titus chapter 2. If you forgot your Bible, just raise your hand and uh, one of our ushers will loan you one. We'd love to loan you a Vanguard Bible. We want you to be able to follow along as we work our way through this passage. The book, the book of Titus, you might remember, is a letter written by the Apostle Paul to his pastoral protege of the same name. Titus had been left on the Mediterranean island of Crete with the difficult assignment of cleaning up a handful of church plants that were very, very, very new, very young. And throughout the letter, you can hear the apostle urging Titus to uh, instruct the Cretans from, to, to move from being consumers of church to ambassadors for Christ that represent him well. This comes out in the theme verse for the book, which is... A, Chapter 2, verse 10, we looked at this last week, but let's review it out loud together as we have throughout the series. Uh, 
Titus chapter 2, verse 10. Let's, say it out, let's read it out loud together off the screen behind me here. So that in every way we can make the teaching about God our Savior attractive. So we learned in chapter 1, verse 12, that the Cretans were known for being, quote, liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. Or, and another way to say it would be, they, are, they were a wild bunch and a rough crowd. For this reason, Paul calls the Cretans to something greater. Make the gospel attractive by being a radiant church. Live in such a way that outsiders are attracted to the church instead of repulsed by it. So we pick up in chapter 2, verse 11. I want to encourage you to follow along with me as I read. Paul says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all unlawfulness, or excuse me, all lawfulness, and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Here's a big idea that I hope you take away from this passage that we're looking at this morning, and it's this. God's grace saves the rebellious and reforms the saved. God's grace saves the rebellious and reforms the saved. After urging various people groups in the first part of chapter 2 and employees in the church to pursue godliness, Paul then tells us why it's important to pursue godliness and how to do so in verses 11 to 14. So the why in godliness, why is it important? Well, the answer is in point number one on your outline. Number one is this, God's grace makes our salvation possible. God's grace makes our salvation possible. He says in verse 11, for the grace of God, grace comes from the Greek word charis, C-H-A-R-I-S. It's a popular girl's name. Perhaps you know somebody that named their daughter that. The word charis is used some 155 times in the New Testament. It often refers to unmerited kindness or favor from God. And like many terms in the Bible, I have seen the meaning of the word grace sort of diluted or distorted over the years. And so I'd like to establish a uh, sort of a, an anchor here, a biblical definition of this precious word that is pregnant with meaning. So the New Testament, if I was to consolidate all the teaching on grace and boil it down into one sentence, I would, I would do it like this. Uh, God's uh, the grace, God's grace, it's God's undeserved acceptance of me through Jesus Christ and the divine enablement to become like him. It's God's undeserved acceptance of me through Jesus Christ and the divine enablement to become like him. Now, since God's grace is often misunderstood by both believers and unbelievers, allow me to clarify uh, this a bit uh, so that we avoid falling into a theological ditch. Um, 
For example, I, I, I have seen over the years in various groups and churches that I've interacted with, believers and unbelievers, that a lot of people like to like the first half of that definition, God's undeserved acceptance. I definitely want that. Yet it gets misconstrued, unfortunately, as, therefore, God loves me the way I am, so I don't have to change at all. I can just accept Jesus and then chill until I die or he returns. And that, that is not what it teaches. So, the rest of the definition is also important. We're going to talk about this morning is that grace also calls and enables us to become like him. So you have a table on your sermon handout that I have included that I wanted to kind of try and sort of fence uh, what grace is not and then what it is. And so grace is not earned through effort. It is unmerited favor. It is not deserved. So if we, we can't earn it, that means we don't deserve it. And it's undeserved. It is not God lowering his standards. That's another misconception. Some people think that grace is somehow God tolerating our sin, or he will, he's, he's content to sort of just let us be who we are. That is not true. Instead, grace raises us to his standards. It's God saying, since you can't be like my son, and he is the standard, I will help you become like him. Grace is not an excuse to sin. It is a motivation instead for holiness. It's also not a justification for apathy. It is instead power to change. Notice in verse 11, as you look at your Bible, Paul says the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. This verse, in essence, is saying that God, motivated by his grace, sent his only son, Jesus Christ, to be the savior of the world so that salvation could be made available to all people. It's not saying, and sometimes verse 11 is misinterpreted as, as sort of being, uh, in fact, theologians call this universalism. It's not saying that everybody in the world is now saved because Jesus came and died. That's not true. Salvation is offered to everybody, but not everybody receives it. It would be like, say, I was going to have a party at my house, and I sent out an invitation. Some of you would come, and some of you would probably go, really? A party at the pastor's house? Like, how fun is that going to be? I'm not going to that. So some of you would accept my invitation and come, and others would choose to do something else instead. And I'm sure you would have plenty of other better things that you could do on any night of the week when I was having a party. So, um, so in a similar sense, salvation is offered. Jesus gives the invitation to everybody. Some accept the invitation, and some don't, and they choose to go their own way instead. And so, uh, one of the many blessings of the gospel that I have seen in my own personal study of the scriptures is that it removes the burden of trying to earn something that we could never earn on our own, which is eternal life, forgiveness, and salvation from our sin. Stephen Lawson said it well when he wrote this, Salvation is not a reward for the righteous, but a gift for the guilty. It's a gift you can't have it, though, until you admit you're guilty. 
guilty of sin against the Lord. Now, because we want to be a church that not only studies God's word, but also tries to discern what he's asking us to do, here's a couple of applications that come to mind that I would ask you to prayerfully consider. If you're an unbeliever, if you have not yet made the life-changing decision to receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior and to give your heart and life to him, then I want to urge you today to give your heart to him and not put that off any longer. We cannot accept God's grace until we first acknowledge our sin. And if you're here today and you don't know Christ as your Savior yet, I want to urge you to stop trying to earn your salvation, because you can't. It's too great a salvation, as the Apostle writes. And you can't be good enough. Or, if you're running from God and he's been working in your life and pursuing you, I want to urge you to stop running from him. You can't outrun him. And he's chasing you because he loves you and he wants a relationship with you and he wants to bless you and he wants to walk with you and help you. He wants to spend eternity with you and he made that possible by sending his son to die for you on the cross so that you wouldn't have to die for your sins instead. If you're not sure where you're going to spend eternity or you'd like to begin a relationship with Jesus Christ, I would love to talk to you after the service about how to do that. And anybody that has one of these name tags that I'm wearing would love to do the same. Now, here's another application that comes to mind, and that is that if you are a believer, if you are someone that is trusted in Christ alone uh, for your salvation, you should be amazed at his grace. Be amazed at his grace. We know the songs and we sing them, and I understand, I struggle with this too, it's, it's easy to kind of go, you know, this is amazing grace. You know, or depending on which version you sing, if you're going to go with the Chris Tomlin sort of modernized version of, you know, uh, my chains are gone, and you, you could go there too, but, but it's easy to sort of forget what's so amazing about grace. In fact, there was an author, I think Philip Yancey wrote a book about that a few years ago. What's so amazing about grace? Because it seems as though the longer we know Christ, the harder it is to be amazed at the grace he showed us. The scriptures declare that we were born in our sin, condemned to hell. And for some Christians, the longer they are found in Christ, the harder it seems to be to remember they were lost without him. Now, I praise God that, in many ways, I, I praise him because I was saved when I was uh, 18, 19 years old, and so I still have some memories of what my life was like without Christ. And for many years, I asked the Lord to, to not let me forget, because I was afraid of forgetting. Now, I understand if you got saved earlier in life, that can be a little harder to do, because it's kind of hard to remember when you were you know, just wearing diapers and saying no to your mom and dad, or when you had your hand in the cookie jar, or, you know, got in trouble for uh, not putting your toys away or something when you were three. And so I understand that, but try your best and ask the Lord to help you. Maybe the Lord can show you what you were like as a sinner by looking at your own kids and seeing what they do, or your grandkids. And then they can help you see what it was like to be lost and born in depravity. So if you've lost your joy, the joy of your salvation, it could be because you've forgotten your sin and you have forgotten how wicked you really are. But our undeniable guilt 
and God's undeserved grace should produce an unquenchable joy in us. And what I have found is that people that lose that joy and people that don't understand God's grace, it can all be traced back to the fact that they don't know how lost they were in their sin. They have begun to believe the lie that they weren't that bad a person. You know, I wasn't, I've always been kind of moral and a decent guy or a decent gal. That's what it can be traced back to. But the people that I have known over the years that have a great joy in their salvation, the people that I know that, that understand God's grace, they have come to grips with their depravity and never lost that grip. They talk about their sin. They, they, they talk about wrestling with their sin. They, they, they talk about their struggle to try and walk with Christ because their standard is to be like Jesus. Their standard isn't to be like somebody else. They've not changed the standard. Their standard is not to just be better than I was last year. The standard is, well, I'm not like Christ, and so I haven't arrived yet. So, be amazed at his grace. Next, Paul answers the question, well, how do we pursue godliness? So number two in your outline is, God's grace empowers our sanctification. His grace empowers our sanctification. So not only does it make salvation possible that God would grant undeserved, unmerited favor to us, but it also enables us to become more like Christ, which is what he wants for us. Now, sanctification, I realize that's a big term, and um, I haven't used that in a while. I think I preached a message on that last year on sanctification in, a, in the, the Gospel Is series. So if you want to learn more about it, you can check that message out online. But sanctification, in a nutshell, is the lifelong process in which the Lord uses multiple means to make us holy like his Son. God doesn't just want to save us. He wants to change us so then he can use us to change lives. In the Lord's eyes, saved people are changed people. And so if you haven't changed, then it certainly begs the question, are you saved? And look at verse 12 with me. Paul says, the grace of God is training us. It's an interesting Greek word. It was used for teaching and instructing a little child. It, it's, a, it's a particular Greek word that uh, refers to what a parent would do for a toddler in teaching them. Uh, there are other Greek words that refer to teaching and instruction that talk more about, say, in the classroom setting. Well, Paul didn't use that word. He uses the parental instruction word. Well, what does this mean? Well, it's significant because it means that when we are born again, we have to be taught how to live a new life for the Lord just like a parent teaches a toddler to live wisely. It means that when we become born again, we're a child of God and we need to learn things that a child has to learn. And it means we need to grasp and receive God's grace through that relationship with Jesus Christ. And when we do so, we should appreciate him so much that we want to please him in everything that we do. One way that we can do this is by renouncing our formal, former life. Notice in verse 12, uh, in the ESV, it says renounce. Uh, other translations say reject or deny or disavow. That's, that's, those are all good translations of the Greek word. 
But, but in essence, what he's saying is that, hey, if you have received the grace of God through Jesus Christ, if you've been born again, if you've been saved, then you should renounce, you should reject your former life. You should disavow yourself and say, I don't want to be connected with that anymore. Yet sadly, there are many, many people I have met over the years that say, well, yeah, I want Jesus, but I don't want to let go of my former life. I still like my sin. I like my old friends. And Paul is saying clearly here in verse 12, no, you can't have both. Because if you get the grace of God and you get how lost you were without Christ, then you should want to disavow, reject, renounce your former life and say, all done with that person. That person was going to hell. That person was dead in their transgressions. I want what Jesus has to offer. I can be alive in Christ. I can be blessed and have fellowship with God through him. So God's, God's word leaves no room for someone to profess faith in Christ while still holding on to their sin, the sin that Christ died to set them free from. There's no room for that. God's grace, according to Paul, should make us want to run from our sin as fast as a prisoner would run when the, the prison door cell was opened up. He wouldn't dare, if, if the doors to his prison cell were opened up, say, you know, I'm going to stay here in my prison. We should, we should want to run from our sin as fast as a slave would run after being released from their shackles. And interestingly, the New Testament says that before we are born again, we are slaves to sin in bondage to our depravity. We should want to run like a dog that's been set free off its leash. I know my dog in particular, he wouldn't just sit there and stay still once his leash is taken off. He would bolt. He'd be gone set free by the grace of his master, letting him loose in the park. <laughs> so, the grace of God is training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, or as Charles Spurgeon so eloquently wrote in his book called All of Grace, surely no rebel can expect the king to pardon his treason while he remains in open revolt. No one can be so foolish as to imagine that the judge of all the earth will put away our sins if we refuse to put them away ourselves. Now, please don't misunderstand me, uh, Paul, and neither Spurgeon or myself saying we have to be perfect. We can't be. Instead, it's about an attitude, a mindset towards sin where we have to be sick of our sin, that we're willing to throw it off and run to Christ and put on holiness with his help, with his grace, in the enablement of his spirit. Unfortunately, the adversary has been working since the first century to twist and distort the teaching on grace in various ways to create false gospels. Jesus warned in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 7, that there would be false prophets that would come in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. Here are four popular false gospels that come from misinterpreting God's grace that are circulating in our culture. I want to share these with you, and they're on the table on your sermon handout, the second table. I want to share these with you so that you can be aware of them, so that you're not deceived by a wolf so that you're not tricked or duped into believing something that is false. So here's the first one. 
I call it the performance gospel. The performance gospel. The performance gospel says that good works are required before conversion, that Christ's work on the cross was not sufficient, so you need Jesus plus something. The result that this produces is legalism. Legalism is not obedience to the scriptures. Instead, legalism is the enforcement of extra-biblical rules in order to earn salvation from the Lord. A common example of this would be trying to use such things as baptism or church membership or attendance or volunteerism or just being a nice person or voting for a particular political party or taking a position on certain political issues to earn or justify salvation. In essence, it's you must perform, and if you do, you can get salvation. That's a false gospel. Here's the next one that is uh, pervasive in our culture, and I call it the permissive gospel. It takes God's grace to the other extreme by teaching that no life change or good works are necessary after professing faith in Christ. The result is worldliness. In essence, there are people that profess to know Christ but aren't changed by Christ. They claim to have experienced the grace of God and salvation, but they live like the world. There's no difference in their lifestyle. You can't tell them apart from an unbeliever. I think this is the most common false gospel that I see in our culture today because it's so easy to preach. Preachers are able to pass it off because it sounds true. When in essence, it's really half-truths. And as I like to say in my home, a half-truth is a whole lie. It's not, you, you can't go, well, it was partially true. No, according to the Lord and his word, withholding the whole truth is a lie. So, so it sounds true because it's got all the goodies in there of Jesus loves you, he died for you, you can have forgiveness and all that, and you don't have to change because they never ask you to change. There's no, you can just ask for forgiveness for your sins, but you don't have to really repent of your sin or leave your sin. And you don't have to serve, you don't have to give or anything as a demonstration of your gratitude for what Christ did for you. So it's a gospel that proclaims forgiveness with no repentance. It usually manifests itself in people who say they believe in Christ but show no evidence of life change. And basically, they know about Jesus and so when you try to talk to them about the Lord, they can articulate the gospel. They've heard of it, and they say they are a Christian, but they do not know him. And there is a difference. There's a difference between knowing about Jesus and actually knowing him. James said faith without works is dead faith. And throughout the New Testament, it's made clear that if you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, if you understand what he did for you, then you will not hesitate to give your life to him and sell out for him and do everything that he asks you to do and more because it's worth it. Here's the next false gospel. This is less common in our country, but I call it the poverty gospel. It says that living a life with little to no material belongings uh, proves that you are saved. Proponents of this gospel see 
everything in the world is contaminated, basically. Uh, uh, and, and since Jesus was poor, so should you be. And since Jesus lived with hardly anything, you don't need anything either. So sell everything you have. And live like monks or like the Amish. The result this produces is separatism. It, it creates Christian communities, or so-called Christian communities, they profess to be Christians, but they are so secluded from the world that they can't engage with the world and share the gospel. They're so afraid of being contaminated by the world that they sort of go to the extreme of withdrawing from the world and they can't tell anybody about Jesus because the world's not seeing them. And finally, here's another one, the last one, and this also is quite common. I would have to say the permissive gospel, and I would have to say this one, the prosperity gospel, is quite common in our country. The prosperity gospel teaches that it is God's will for you to be healthy, wealthy, and happy right now. Proponents of this gospel believe that God is not only here to save you, but to serve you. It says that the more you pray, the more you give, and the more you believe, the more God will give back to you. And if you haven't been blessed with prosperity, then you haven't prayed, given, or believed enough. This gospel is so wicked, it falls because it just feeds the self-centeredness of man. It doesn't call on man like Jesus did to deny, them, to, to deny themselves and to pick up the cross and follow him. Instead, it in essence says, Jesus, follow me and give me what I want and do what I say as opposed to what it's supposed to be. He's God, I'm not. I sinned against him. I should be following him. I should be doing what he says. So, the result is materialism. This false gospel ignores what Scripture teaches about our sin nature, and then it strips verses from their context about material blessings and elevates those verses to be the most important verses of the Bible. It makes people the center of the universe instead of the Lord. So be, beware of the performance gospel that says you have to earn your salvation Beware of the permissive gospel that says you can have Jesus in your sin too. And beware of the poverty gospel that says you have to be poor in order to be godly. And beware of the prosperity gospel which says you have to be rich in order to be blessed. And you have to be rich in order to be saved. So if grace helps us to renounce ungodliness according to verse 12 and worldly passions, and what does this look like practically? Well, here's an application that comes to mind that I want to encourage you to consider, and that is grow in grace. Grow in grace. And yes, I kept it to three words, so it would be fast, easy for you to write down. So let me unpack that now a little bit. This happens by drawing near to the Lord through the spiritual disciplines of prayer and personal Bible study. James 4.8 says that when we draw near to God, he will draw near to us. It's just, it, there's no shortcut to it. We, you can't microwave it. You can't, there's no app for it. You have to make time for him in the crock pot, as I like to say, and, and marinate 
in the word of God and in prayer. You have to make time for him in the morning before work and before school. And when you do that, and you spend time reading his word and praying over his word and asking him to speak to you, when you do that, he will encourage you, he will strengthen you, he will give you the grace you need to apply his word to your life, he will give you wisdom that you need for the day. When Paul was struggling to press on with an ailment that he called a thorn in the flesh in 2 Corinthians 12, Paul says that he asked the Lord three times to take it away. I know some of you can relate to this because some of you have ailments, afflictions that are nagging. Well, Paul had one. And when he asked the Lord to remove it, in 2 Corinthians 12, 9, the Lord's response was, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. And when Timothy was struggling to fulfill his ministry responsibilities in Ephesus, Paul told him in 2 Timothy Chapter 2, verse 1, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. In other words, Timothy, this is a hard assignment, I know, but, but, but lean on Jesus. Don't try to do this in your own strength. He will help you. If you lean on him, abide in him, remain in him, he will be with you and enable you to do this tough assignment. Just as he told Paul, I'm not going to take away this affliction from you because it's going to keep you humble. And so I want you to abide in me and lean on me, and I will help you get through this affliction. So grow in grace, relying on him. Don't try to grow by yourself. You will become discouraged and frustrated, and eventually you will quit. Here's point number three in your outline. God's grace sustains us until his return. It sustains us until his return. Paul says... While we wait for our blessed hope. This is one of the many names given to Jesus in the scriptures. It's a reference to the rapture in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, during which Jesus will come back to earth to rescue or take up or to cause living Christ followers to be caught up and back to heaven before the Father's wrath is poured out on earth. Hope is the positive expectation that my current circumstances will change. Well, if you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, things are definitely going to improve when he returns. So if faith feels like a marathon, if, if walking with Christ feels like a marathon and a long one, you're just wishing it would be done, wishing it would be done, Paul's saying, hey, the finish line is the blessed hope. He's going to come back. All your pain, all your suffering, your disappointment, your losses will be gone and will be worth it because the blessed hope is coming back to get you, to rescue you. In 1 John 2.28, John says that as we wait for his return, we need to remain or abide in Christ so that we're not ashamed when he does show up because none of us wants to be found kind of taking a break from Jesus when he comes back. Scholars call this the imminent return of Christ. Imminent means any moment it could happen. Uh, like a thief in the night, the New Testament says, he will return when we least expect it. So application, well, pretty simple. You probably guessed it. We need to be prepared for his return. We should walk with him, tell others about him, serve him, worship him as we wait for, and hope in him to come back and get us. 
like a pop quiz that a teacher would give in a classroom just to make sure you're learning the material. Jesus is going to return like a thief in the night and evaluate and reward what we've done for him. That time has not been announced. In fact, Jesus said, only my Father knows when that time will be. And so what the New Testament urges Christ followers to do is to, to live with what I call a peaceful urgency, meaning that we shouldn't procrastinate the commands of Scripture or sharing our faith because we don't know how much time we have, but we also shouldn't fret with the world that's decaying around us. There's an urgency and a peacefulness that's talked about in the New Testament when it comes to the return of Christ. And finally, the fourth thing that Paul tells us about grace is uh, God's grace motivates us to serve him. It motivates us to serve him. He says in verse 14 that those that have experienced the grace of God should be zealous for good works because of this extravagant grace that has been shown to us in Jesus Christ. Paul says we should be eager and excited to do great things for him. Let me, uh, if you would, just keep your finger in Titus 2 and turn to 1 Corinthians 15 with me real quick. I want to show you something, a passage that's often overlooked. I kind of call this a dusty corner of the Bible. Um, a lot of people don't go here and don't see this. I stumbled upon this a couple years ago in my devotions and just went, whoa, that is so amazingly cool. And I actually said that. So 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and let's look at verses 9 and 10. Paul says, For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. So note, note in verse 9, Paul's recalling his life before Christ, his sin. He's never forgotten his sin. He's never forgotten how he persecuted the church. He, he arrested Christians and had them, had them uh, uh, executed. Paul's not forgotten that. And so because of the great indebtedness he feels to the Lord, he says, by the grace of God, I am what I am. So I can't take credit for anything. For the, for the growth I've made, the changes I've made, it's God working in me. And then he says, I also wanted to make sure that his grace toward me was not in vain, that, that Jesus didn't waste his grace on me. That, 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 that Jesus showed me grace and it was worth him doing it and I didn't waste the investment of that. So I worked hard for him, not to earn salvation, but I worked hard for him because I'm grateful, so grateful for what he did for me. Not I, but the grace of God that was with me. So, application, serve him with gratitude. Serve him with gratitude. Serving him is, is not a burden, but a privilege. We've talked about that since the early days of Vanguard. It's a privilege. It's the least we can do. When you consider our sinfulness and our lostness, our depravity and what we deserve, we deserve God's wrath. But he showed us grace in the Lord Jesus Christ, and he has given us a salvation we cannot earn, we cannot lose, and we certainly don't deserve. I'm so grateful. Um, when I brag about our church occasionally, one of the things I like to mention is that 
I, I am so blessed that we have people, I know there are many of you that have not served in a church before. And you now serve every week, and you do it with a great joy. It's not, there's no grumpiness or anything like that. I mean, it, what amazes me too is that y'all don't even need, like the setup team, they don't need coffee before they come in the morning in order to be happy, you know, or maybe, maybe I'm missing something. But, but it's so great to see our ministry teams work well together and serve joyfully as opposed to... And so um, if, if you are not yet serving, and most of the people in our church are, but if, if you are not yet serving, I want to encourage you to check out the volunteer, the serve page on our website. Uh, we have needs that are posted there, uh, or you can talk to me after the service, but you are missing out on a blessing to not only give back to the Lord with your time, uh, but also to rub shoulders with other sinners saved by grace just like you. It's a great privilege, and sometimes it's fun. Hopefully it's always fun, but, um, but it's the least you could do is to serve him with gratitude. So, if you're here today and you have felt the tug of the Spirit on your heart, and maybe you have heard uh, me talk about the grace of God and, and mention several times the need to have a relationship with Jesus Christ in order to have your sins forgiven. Um, I would love to talk to you after the service. We do not want you to leave here today without knowing where you will spend eternity. The scriptures are very clear that without a relationship with Jesus Christ, sinners will spend eternity separated from God in hell suffering the consequences for their sin. But it does not have to be that way. As I mentioned earlier with the party illustration in my house, um, Jesus offers, he invites anyone who will repent of their sin and by faith trust in him alone for salvation. Jesus promises that by grace and through faith in me alone, you can have forgiveness and peace and salvation and eternal life. It is a gift of God, not the result of works, so that no one can boast, as Paul writes in Ephesians. And so, that invitation is out there. And if you'd like to learn more about that, please talk to me after the service. So, God's grace saves the rebellious, and that we certainly were before we knew Christ, and it reforms the saved. Would you join me as we close in prayer? Heavenly Father, Thank you that grace is one of the many facets of your character. Thank you, Lord, that uh, as the psalmist wrote in Psalm 103, you have not treated us as our sins deserve. You are slow to anger, but abounding in love. Father, I want to pray for anyone here today that may not yet know Jesus as their Savior. Would you, Lord, reveal Jesus to them and help them to repent of their sin, to leave their sin, to turn from it, and to turn to you and to give their heart and life to Jesus Christ. Lord, for those that maybe have made that decision, but they have worn themselves out trying to live the Christian life apart from grace, Lord, would you help them to understand in their mind what it means and what it looks like to abide in Christ to lean 
and be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Father, please would you empower and strengthen those that are in our church that are maybe suffering right now. There may be some here that have a very difficult job or maybe a difficult marriage or going through a a health trial. Lord, would you show them what it looks like, help them learn how to lean on your grace and to let your grace sustain them and carry them through this difficult season. Lord, we cannot thank you enough for what you've done for us and what you offer in Christ. But now as we transition to the Lord's Supper, you've given us this ordinance so that we can remember what Christ did for us. Jesus asked us to do the, practice the Lord's Supper and to celebrate it because, uh, Lord, we know we're forgetful. And so, Lord, we, we don't want this time to be routine. We want it to be special and unique. So would you help us, Lord, by your spirit to, to just today to have a fresh appreciation for the bread and the cup? I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Again, we hope you've enjoyed listening to the Vanguard Bible Church podcast by Pastor Kerry Knack. For more information about Vanguard Bible Church, please visit our website at www.vanguardbible.org. Have a great week, and we hope to see you at Vanguard Bible Church.